Last Sabbath, I thanked you for hanging in there because I kept going because I wanted to, I really wanted to try and finish the point. And in listening to last Sabbath sermon, I didn't quite get there. I don't think I finished the point. The hardest thing uh, for me always when preaching from a series is how much do we recap? How much do we review? Well, this time, I don't think you even got what I was headed for last week. So if you remember the revelation, what is the revelation that Jesus gives the disciples that probably they have never even heard the words before? Do you remember what it was? Something about the Father and how he feels about them. What was it? That the Father himself loves you. That maybe they were even getting to the point to where they had an inclination that, well, if Jesus is like the Father or the Son has relation to the Father, then maybe, maybe I can send the Son in to this angry Father that I know, that I read about from Sinai and all those places. Maybe if I could send the Son in, then maybe the Father will like me just a little bit more. Maybe they, Jesus knew their hearts and knew that that's where it was headed. You know, so he drops this bomb on them. For the Father himself, what? Loves you. And I know that it was a bombshell because of the way that they reacted. They reacted this way. His disciples said what? Not yes. Yes! Hey, I finally got something that he said. Because I'm not sure they understood anything that he said up until now. I, he said, you're, spe- you're speaking what? Which, by the way, it's funny. They blame him for his dense speech of why they can't understand him. And what's funny, uh, you know, he spoke in parables, which parables are written for who? For kids. You know, but anyway, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this, we believe that you came from where? From God. That's how big a bombshell this was. That's how big a bombshell it was. So he gives this right information about God and they now claim to believe. Do they? Well, I think that they do sitting there and I think they do with their words. But what do they claim to do with this new teaching? They say they believe. Jesus says, ah, hold on guys, not so much. Okay, not so much. Because Jesus answers and says, do you now what? Do you now believe? The hour is coming indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Because he just told them about the Father, right? Don't worry, I'm not alone, but I'm telling you what you will do. You now claim to believe? Again, their words are right, After being revealed to them that the Father loves them, I think the right words for anybody would say, yes, now I believe. Now I believe. But their actions will show what? That they do or that they don't? Their actions don't quite show it. So Jesus says in just a few hours, you will uh, abandon me. Like I said, they're thrilled to make just a little sense out of his word at all, but just words. 
And I would like to say that right information does not always translate into action of faith, if you will. So what does a road to conviction look like? This is what we've been studying for the past two chapters. This is why I believe that Jesus spent the past two chapters before he dropped that bombshell talking about which person of the Trinity, talking about the Holy Spirit. Because he said the Spirit will come and he will convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it's not just getting the right information, it's also being what? Being convicted. By the way, is, is conviction a roll of the dice? Not if he's living in you, which he just told them through the two chapters that he actually is living in them. So he said, don't worry, if you believe that I'm living in you, you will be convicted. So what does the road to conviction look like? What does this brand new relationship to the Father look like? And we're about to be introduced to what I have found our last, my last trip through with, with prayer meeting has been my favorite chapter in the chapter of John so far. I call it the Lord's Prayer. Because chapter 17 actually is the only recorded prayer from beginning to end out of Jesus' mouth. I'm not discounting the Beatitudes, yes. The disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And he then recites to them, pray then this way. Our what? Our Father. We call that what? We call that the Lord's Prayer. Technically, it's the Lord teaching us how to pray. If you want an even less romantic term, it's the Lord's template to prayer. See, we don't like that. That doesn't look good on a refrigerator magnet or on a calendar, does it? So we call that the Lord's Prayer, but that actually, he wasn't praying. He was teaching them to pray. This is the only prayer you'll hear from beginning to end. And I just think it's gorgeous. I think after what he has taught and the bombshell that he dropped on them, that the Father himself loves you, that he's actually now going to demonstrate what this new relationship with the Father can look like. So he immediately goes where? He immediately goes to the Father. He doesn't go to the scriptures to have a Bible study with them about the Father. He immediately, in their presence, goes where? goes to the Father himself. The prayer is divided up into three sections. I don't know how many we'll get through today. I would like to treat this chapter the way we would a series at camp meeting, if you don't mind. If I see that we're going too long, way too long, I wanna hold back and I wanna keep coming back to address this. Because the prayer itself is even divided into three sections that we could take apart if we wanted to. And we'll see what happens, okay? The first section, is about Jesus, his own personal relationship to the Father, the Son to the Father. So it says, after Jesus had spoken these words, again, remember, remember what the words were, the Father himself what? The Father himself loves you. Oh, we believe now. Uh, not so much. Here's what's going to happen. But watch this. I just love this. I love that he immediately, after saying this, turns his eyes where? to heaven, turns his eyes to heaven. So there is no mistaking who he's talking to, is there? He does that for that, he demonstrates that for them. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him all authority, of, of, authority over people, oops, 
Yeah, since you've given, I'm sorry, I, I went one and I shouldn't have. Since you've given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all that you've given him. And this, he says, is eternal life. That they may what? That they may know you. Now how significant is him telling them that the Father loves them? How significant is it? Because what do they find in that love? This is eternal life. That they may know you. Not a preconceived notion, especially not the preconceived notion that they had up until Jesus said that. Remember, we talked about that. That we did talk about last week. What is the picture of God the Father before Jesus? What does Scripture give us? It can give us a pretty frightening picture, can it? Right? But Jesus said, he's always what? He's always loved you. He's always loved you. So now see how important it is, because this is eternal life, that they may know you. Not your preconceived notion, not a notion that, that, uh, that is anything short of his love for you. If your picture of the Father is anything short than Jesus' love for you, then you have a wrong picture of the Father. And that's how important it is. It's either life or what? It's either life or death. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and his only true feelings for you. The Father himself loves you. And believe in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you what? That you gave me to do. Sorry, I didn't switch the slide for you. So it begins with just them. The son and the who? The son and the father. Father, what have we learned about the Trinity up until now? Jesus speaks to the father as if he's another what? As if he's another person. That's fascinating to ponder, isn't it? Let me ask you this. Is Jesus talking to himself right now? In a way, he is, isn't he? But he doesn't treat it that way, does he? He doesn't treat it that way. He treats the Father as if he's speaking to someone else. Why? Is it for practical reasons? No, there's nothing practical about wanting to talk to yourself. Right? It's not practical to anybody else if I just started to talk to myself. It isn't for practical reasons. Does he have to do this? Does he have to ask the Father? Listen, what, it, what was it that he just asked the Father? Father, the hour has come. Glorify who? Glorify me. Does he have to ask the Father out loud before the Father will do this for him? No. So why is he doing it? It's for his disciples. He just told them they could have their own relationship with the Father. So technically what he's doing is that he's removing the Father to put him separately from him so that they can know that they can pray to him exactly the way he's doing right now. He's doing it for them. And by doing it for them, you'll see in the second part or the third part of the prayer, if he's doing it for those disciples, he's also doing it for all who will believe because of their word, which includes who? Which includes us. He is praying to the Father so we can know what a relationship with the Father looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like.
He is building on that excitement that they finally understood something. Father. He's doing it for who? He's doing it for them. He doesn't have to. That's what our scripture reading is about. God, very God, who doesn't have to do anything for anybody, has decided that he will condescend, has decided that he will make himself into one of us simply to get us to understand how much he loves us. Does he have to? No. Why does he do it? Why does he empty completely himself? There's nothing at all in atonement about him, is there? Remember, that's what we learned about this Trinity community too. None of them are full of themselves. They're not doing anything for themselves. The voice thunders from from the heavens with Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Don't listen to this voice, listen to him. Jesus said when the spirit comes, he will not speak of his own or even speak of the father, he'll speak of me. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is no one good but the Father. That's what our scripture reading is about. Isn't that what he's doing right now? He doesn't have to pray to the Father. As a matter of fact, some of us who call ourselves spiritual, we place ourselves in a position sometime that, that we will not condescend. If it were me, do I, have to, do I have to do this elementary thing just so these guys can understand me? I've had it with the denseness of these guys. I'm not going to belittle myself to talk to my father. I don't have to do this. But he did it for who? He did it for them. He did it for us. So immediately, this prayer is, to me, revolutionary. This prayer is unbelievable. It's not showing them how to pray. It's actually saying, this is the relationship you can have. I told you before, the Father himself loves you. Here's what two people who love each other, this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. Father, the hour has come. Glorify me. Glorify me, he says. Prayer is confounding sometimes, is it not? How many here have your prayer life knocked? Nobody? I thought for sure somebody was going to raise their hand. Then I was going to ask them for their book. I, I, I know that I've shared this for you before. My pet peeve are books on prayer. I, not, not, not true. My pet peeve is not books on prayer. My pet peeve are books on how to pray. <laughs> Those bother me. Books on prayer. My favorite book on prayer is an author that the very first thing he says about prayer is, I don't know how to do it. That's why I'm writing this book. I like that. But you always notice that somebody has a book to sell, they also have a way for you to pray. But prayer can be confounding, especially when we're talking to a God who already knows what we are going to say, already knows what we are feeling, and in this case, Is he even talking to himself? So what happens is, the first thing that Jesus shows them is need. He needs the Father to do something for him, he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now actually, again, does he need this? 
Does he need to ask for it? No. He places himself in an area of need so that you can know that when you approach the Father with need, he will be as attentive to you as he was to Jesus. Need becomes the subject. Need becomes the, uh, the idea. Need becomes love, free will, and need. This is what this relationship is about. This is what prayer is about. Need becomes a different perspective when you consider that the God you're uh, praying to loves you. Need becomes something else, doesn't it? When you consider love, free will, and friends, and how they treat each other, and what they're willing to do, the Trinity is a demonstration of God's love, period. That's what it is. What you must have, what you must have, is God's definition of what love is. What is God's definition of love? How is it demonstrated in this prayer? How is it demonstrated in the Trinity? Well, you have to have two things. You have to have free will, and you have to have community. You have to have somebody else. In Matthew 18, verse 19, Jesus says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, and it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. Why does it take two to get the Father to do what he wants them to do? Is because it takes two in order to what? In order to love. Because he adds this, he says, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Where how many? At least what? Two. And he says, three is even better. At least two. There were two major Talmudic rabbis who were alive at the time of Jesus. They might be two of the most famous rabbis of the Second Temple period. One was named Hillel, the other one was named Shammai. I'm not sure, but it's about probably 30 to 40 years before Jesus utters these words in Matthew. Hillel actually wrote and taught his students where two or three are gathered, their Torah is among them. Hillel said about 30 years earlier, if two or three are gathered... And if they gather for that purpose, their Torah is with them. The law. Torah is the word for the law. If you get together with more than two, at least two, more than two, their Torah will be among you. Well, think about when the lawyer came to ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the law? He was asking for a summarization of the law. Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. A gathered in my name isn't complete until there's somebody else to love. Law doesn't show up. Love does not show up with just me and God. It shows up when he puts somebody in our lives that we can love as he has loved us. Now you have love. And by the way, now you have prayer. It's interesting the word that he uses even. The Greek word that is used is suneg menai, which is the word that we get synagogue from. It's actually a verb form of synagogue. And it means to gather, which I, I, I love that. 
I wish, I wish well, actually church in Greek does mean to gather. Ecclesia is a gathering. Synagogue is the same. A synagogue is a place where we gather. See, in Jesus' incarnation is God's presence. In his very incarnation is God's presence. He is God's presence walking around in human form. But it isn't complete. He needs one more, at least. Jesus says, my, the Father's love isn't complete until I've got someone else in my gathering. He is love, isn't he? But for our sakes, he makes the definition of love, you and me, having to enter into the equation. And he doesn't settle for anything less. Where two or more are gathered, there love is. So free will and community. What's he asking? He's asking that the Son be glorified. So can the Son actually glorify the Father? Jesus actually received glory from the Father already. He says that all authority has been given unto me. Once again, how can the Son have all the authority of the Father? It's because they are what? It's because they're one. And again, the beautiful thing that this prayer shows us is that that oneness does not stop him to find the gathering. His love does not stop at just them. The son already glorifies the father. But it's almost like the father and the son say, we need one more. I need you so that I can love you the way the father loves me. Jesus says, now it's complete. Now I'm in your midst. So if you have Jesus living in you, don't be surprised why you're always looking for somebody to love. That's him living in you. Are you looking for somebody to love? Not in a romantic sense. It could be. It could be if there's anybody that we should love with the love of the Father, it's those that we've placed our romantic interest on, amen? But actually it's love for everyone. Everyone. So he says it in verse five, so now Father, glorify me in your what? in your own presence, with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. They might be saying, well, this is great, but the Father doesn't seem to be here. How come Jesus can say, glorify me with your own presence? That's because he is the Father's presence. He's showing them, he's telling them that this is the presence. Glorify me in your presence. The glory that I had before, the glorified Christ. Consider this then, consider this. You have to remember, and I haven't mentioned it in a while, what's going to happen tomorrow as he says this? The cross. It's less than 12 hours away. Have you considered this? That the glory that really is the glory of the Father, he's about to demonstrate for the entire world and for the universe in about 12 hours. So that glory that he's speaking of is the glory of the cross. What truly glorifies God is this one act for humanity. Have you ever figured that out? For God so loved the world. If I'm going to demonstrate God's presence, if the son needs to demonstrate God's presence in the world, this is how he's going to do it. He already told Nicodemus that 14 chapters ago. 
For God so loved the world. See, but what's interesting is, is that it's for us. It's for us. It's for us who live in this time. I think I've, I've, I've shared this with you before. We're the only creatures that live in linear time. We have a beginning and we have what? We have an end. The fall put an expiration date on life, right? The fall put the expiration date on life. So we live from one event to the other. Does God? No. He doesn't have to because he is eternal life, isn't he? So the cross isn't an event for God, is it? He's always loved us. How long? Before the foundation of the world. Before you guys put an expiration date on time, I've loved you. So the cross, he doesn't need the event in order for him to be love. He does it for who? He condescends, doesn't he? Even with the obedience all the way to where, Arlene? All the way to the cross. The cross isn't an event in a history to him. The cross is him and always will be him. He is in a constant motion, if you will, an eternity of constantly laying down his life for his friends. You with me? I can't hear you. Okay. I just need to hear it every now and then. And it's probably ego, okay, yes, it's probably ego. This, this is a selfish thing. Complete, talking about the most selfless community in all the universe, I'm being selfish, yes. But you know what? He loves me. And he loves you too. The Father himself loves you. And that's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He says this. He says, I've made your name What? I've made your name known to those whom you've given me from the world. So who's he, who's he talking about? Those guys right there. I've made your name known to them. When did he do that? He's been doing it for when? For three and a half years. He's been doing it, hasn't he? Preaching, teaching, healing, performing miracles, giving them power to perform miracles, to go and to preach and to teach. He's been doing it all. I made your name known to them. And by the way, I just dropped their true name on him about five verses ago. The Father himself loves you. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. The Father himself, what? Loves you. He opened them up to the actual Father. He made the Father completely known in the person of the Son. Anything short of Jesus, anything short of Jesus, you have a distorted picture of God. If you try to dissect the Trinity and study it only one person at a time, you're always going to end up with a short picture of God, at worst, at best. At worst, a wrong picture of God. They weren't meant to be separated. It's nice to separate them, to study them. But to me, the Trinity wasn't meant to be studied. The Trinity was meant to experience. The Trinity was meant for you to allow him to live in you. So he goes on and he says, now they, now, let me see. Now they know that what? 
that everything you've given me is from you. They now know this, he says. I told them. I've shared it with them. They now know it. For the words that you gave to me, I've given to them. They've received them, and I know in the truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. They believed. Everything the Father has given them, he is from the Father. The words include the transformation of the word become flesh. By the way, do they believe that now? Uh, They at least said that they did, but Jesus said, ah, hold on, okay, hold on. Your actions are uh, going to become troublesome. But it's interesting to ponder, and if you compare their actions coming up, do they believe? Yet he just told the Father that what? He told the Father that they did. Did he lie to him? No. Because their faith in him means that his actions are theirs. His righteousness is theirs. If Jesus goes to the Father and says that you're mine, the Father just looks and says, of course they are. Of course they are. So I'm just saying. John in Gethsemane, you'll find in Gethsemane, has a completely different narrative. But Jesus' words, not the experience, if you will. Not the words, not the words we believe. We believe now that everything, you, you taught us everything about the Father. We believe now. But in less than a chapter, Peter will be going, you know what, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know him. Three times. John's denial. We talked about this in prayer meeting. John may not have said it out loud, but we speculated that John may have a way into the trial, and he didn't go in and speak up. You know, Jesus just needed one person to speak up that night. Just one. We read in the other Gospels, At the tomb, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna in Luke 24, Joanna, mother of James, and the other women uh, with, with them told this to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They, they went and told him, we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Lord. They thought that they were joking. Now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. But we had hoped, they said, that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day that these things took place. So it's interesting that he tells the father, they believed that you sent me. Yet still they'll deny and they'll abandon and they will try to move on. And you'll see in John chapter 21, they're going to all move on. Even after he's appeared to them. So it's interesting. But what he's doing is, what he's trying to tell them is, I'm asking on what? On their behalf. By the way, which is exactly what he said he wouldn't do. 
I won't, I'm not telling you that I'm gonna go ask the Father. I don't have to go ask the Father because the Father himself loves you. But in this particular case, he says, I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me because they are yours. He speaks of them as if they're righteous because their faith in him makes them righteous. Their actions may even deny the faith at the time, but their faith speaks words. Yes, we do believe now. We believe everything you taught us about the Father. Remember, the Spirit comes to convict us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. All mine is yours. All mine is yours. I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me because they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I've been glorified in them. Everything the Father is, Jesus has been glorified. Notice he says it's not for the world. Why? Why is it not for the world? Because the world believes nothing of what he taught them and what the Spirit convicts them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. What's the world's solution to sin? It's a trick question. They don't have one. They try, right? The world's solution to sin is just quit what? Just quit sinning. Just quit sinning. If it's really bad, just quit doing it. And oh, if you really want to be good, start doing good things to make up for it. Is that a solution for sin? No. Because it doesn't account for a lot of things. And one thing that it doesn't account for is that if I do manage to be able to take care of one little sin in my life, I turn around to move forward and what's waiting for me? Another one. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? So it's a trick question. The world has no solution for sin. And if we're not convicted, we won't either. All mine is yours. All mine is yours. The Father, Jesus says to the Father, everything I have is yours. Everything that you are is mine. I and the Father are one. If you believe Jesus loves you, then you believe the Father loves you. And in that love, Jesus is glorified. It's love again. It's love willing to call them something that they're not. He calls them what? He calls them believers. These guys, they're believers. Their actions are going to show that they're not. Why? Because he loves them. It's because he loves them. See, and that's what he does. That's who the Father is. In Genesis 1, the Father shows up and does something out of what? Out of nothing. He looked into the nothing and he said, let there be light. He creates something out of what? out of nothing. If he could do it for all of creation, couldn't he do it for one poor sinner? And if he could do it for one poor sinner, 
Couldn't he do it for every other one? The Father himself loves you. How many here, knowing what you know now, would be willing to go to the Father a little later today and pray this exact prayer? Don't read it to him. Don't read it to him. Well, maybe, maybe. Maybe read it to him until you begin to lift it off the page until it begins to come from your heart. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Could we ask for anything more from the Father than for him to glorify us? Because that's what Jesus is putting at. We'll, we'll get to these next two sections, but that's exactly what he's saying in this prayer. Exactly what he's saying is, is that anybody who asks can be glorified by the Father. Because why? Because we have the Son. For God so loved the world, so in him we find what? We find our sin atoned for. We find his righteousness uh, accounted to us. And we find judgment to be a complete exoneration for all of us. We have no reason to fear the judgment. Why? You've got nothing on your record. Do you have faith in Jesus? Okay, so he comes to open your book and guess what? There's no sin on your record. Why are you fearing the judgment? So going back and taking a look at that, going back, Father, glorify me, he says. Would you be willing to say these words to the Father? Because what Jesus is saying is because of me, you can. The Father himself, what? Loves you. You can pray to him the same way that I prayed, with this confidence, with this idea, with this love. He looks up to heaven and says, the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life, that they would know you. Would you be willing to begin to pray to the Father that way? You should. You should. Because he died and was resurrected to make sure that we could. When we get to the kingdom, we're not going to have to send Jesus into the room to make sure the Father's not angry. We don't have to send Jesus into the room to calm him down. The Father himself loves you. So the kingdom will be about walking and talking, not just with the Son but walking and talking with the Father. And the Spirit, the Spirit will be in and it, the Spirit will be that presence for all of us. But the beautiful thing is, is right here, right in the armpit of the universe, we can have it right now. So I urge you, I encourage you to go back, take a look at those first, how, how far did we get? Take a look at those first 10 verses. And begin to pray that prayer to the Father. And go with the boldness of the Son. Because that's what he wants you to have. And if you want to know what it's like after you get up in order to be able to glorify the Father the way the Son has, is go find somebody to love. Go find somebody to love with the love that you know you just received from the Father. Every day when you ask. I won't ask on your behalf 
I don't have to, he said, for the Father himself loves you.